Hi guys, I'm James. I'm a first year master's student and I get the pleasure today of reading the Bible. So we're going through. So it's Hebrews 13 and you can either go through it in your Bible or the pamphlet that we've given. Right. Hebrews 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can me immortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy, Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Well, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? It's one thing to talk about being a Christian or to talk about trusting in Jesus. Another thing to know what that actually looks like in practice to live out, isn't it? Over the past few weeks, as has been mentioned, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, that part of the Bible known as Hebrews is, is a letter. It was a letter written to a group of people probably about 50 years or so after Jesus lived and died and was raised from the dead. And we've seen that this letter was written to Christians who were under pressure to give up on Jesus. 
They were facing persecution, mistreatment, and they were suffering. And they were tempted to throw in the towel on following Jesus altogether. And in previous weeks, if you've been with us, we've seen how the author of Hebrews has encouraged them to stick with Jesus. He said, have faith in God and his future promises because he's proven himself trustworthy. He said, endure hardship as God's loving discipline. Hang in there. Stick with Jesus. But of course, this leaves open a pretty big question. If they do stick with Jesus, what does it actually look like to follow him? And that's what the author of Hebrews unpacks for us here in chapter 13. Now, this is useful for us in all kinds of ways. Um, maybe you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, but you just sometimes wonder, um, am I doing it right? Is this, is, this, is this what it looks like to be a Christian? Or perhaps you're someone who's investigating Christianity. And maybe from what you've seen of Jesus so far, he, he seems pretty legit. And maybe you're even considering putting your trust in him. But maybe part of what's holding you back is that big question mark. What am I actually signing up for? What does it look like to follow this guy? Does it mean I just have to become more religious? Does it mean I have to just start working really hard to try to be a good person? What's actually involved? Well, uh, Hebrews 13 helps us to begin to answer that question. It shows us what it looks like not only to stick with Jesus, but to live for him. And it fleshes it out in all kinds of practical ways. And as we look at it today, we're going to be looking especially at the first eight verses of Hebrews 13. And what we're going to see is that a life shaped around Jesus is not what people might expect. And that it doesn't fit into the categories that our culture gives us. Because here's the thing, in our culture today, you generally have people who fall into one of two camps. On the one hand, you have people who are all about social justice. They're on about caring for the poor and needy, the refugee and the stranger. But when it comes to questions about sex and marriage and that kind of thing, they say, well, we'll let people do what they want. God doesn't care about what people do in the bedroom. Love is love. And on the other hand, you have people who are often who are very religious. And they're all about uh, personal holiness and sexual ethics and defending God's definition of marriage. They're big on private ethics and personal holiness, but when it comes to social justice and helping the poor and the stranger and the refugee, they're often silent. And you often have in our culture these two camps who are quite different from each other. But Hebrews 13 shows us that followers of Jesus won't fit neatly into either of these two camps. So let's have a look and see what it says. If you've got a Bible hand out in front of you, have a look with me at Hebrews 13 verses 1 to 2. Hebrews 13 verses 1 to 2. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, there are two key things that we're, that we're told that followers of Jesus will do in these verses. Love others and show hospitality. You can see that there, can't you? Now, what you're reading right there in English is a very good translation of the original Greek that this letter was written in almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, love others, show hospitality, that's what it means. Uh, but due to the nature of the English language, it hides a strong parallel in these verses. It's quite striking. It literally reads, uh, 
that when it says love one another, it's saying let Philadelphia continue. The Greek word for love of brothers or family. Let Philadelphia continue, i.e. keep doing it. And do not forget Philozenia, love of stranger. See, in Greek, the word philo means love and adelphos means brother. So Philadelphia means love of siblings, of close family. It's loving those who are like us. And xenos means a stranger or a foreigner. So philozenia means loving and caring for strangers. That's why it's translated as showing hospitality. But it doesn't only mean having someone over for a meal, which is often what we think of when we think of hospitality. Philozenia means practically caring and loving for those who are not like us. In the ancient world, the xenos, the foreigner, was often powerless in society. They had no connections or support systems, and they may well have struggled with the local language. They were vulnerable. And Hebrews 13 is saying that Christians should not only love people who are like them, but should also love those who are different and who are vulnerable. We should be not only characterised by love for each other, Philadelphia, but also love of stranger, Philozenia. And as is often the case in the Bible, when it talks about love, it's not just describing a feeling. When the Bible says you should love someone, it's not just talking about warm fuzzies. No, it means practically caring for them. That's what love is. It's to put the needs of someone else before your own. It's to put their good before your own. And so when it says love of stranger, it's calling us to actively care for them. And the very next verse unpacks that further. I mean, have a look in your Bibles with me at Hebrews 13, verse 3. It says... Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, we have to understand that a prison in the ancient world was very different to what it is today. Nowadays in Australia, people in prison get three good meals, comfy beds. They've got all their needs taken, taken care of, aren't they? In fact, there are some people who are homeless who actually intentionally do things that will get them into prison because they'll be far better taken care of by society if they do that. You've got a comfy bed, you've got meals. Uh, but back then, it was a very different story. Uh, people in prison were often simply left to rot. They often weren't even given food and were dependent on outside friends to come in and give them maybe a bit of bread each day, maybe some blankets. That's why even the, the Apostle Paul, when he's in prison, will often write to people and say, hey, do you mind bringing me a cloak? Winter's coming. This is about to get pretty tough. So these people, because they were in prison, were as vulnerable and helpless as you could get. They couldn't even provide basic needs for themselves. And even more so if they were a foreigner, a xenos, because they didn't know anyone else around them who could take care for their needs. And so Hebrews 13.3 is calling for followers of Jesus to practically meet the needs of the most vulnerable in society, as if we were in their shoes. It's kind of like what Jesus said, you know, do to others as you would have them to you, do to you, which is a lovely platitude, but when you actually look at it in practice, it's quite, it's quite radical, isn't it? To feed them, clothe them, care for them. Hebrews 13 is saying that's what followers of Jesus do. Now, if this is all that Christians were on about, our secular culture would be all for it, wouldn't they? 
If Christians were simply on about love for others, love for the stranger and the foreigner and the outcast, caring for those in prison and serving the poor, welcoming the refugee, if Christians were just focused on social justice, our society would be right behind us. A couple of years ago during the debates around same-sex marriage, I often heard people say something to the effect of, why do Christians have to be so stuck up about marriage and sex? God doesn't care what people do in the bedroom. Christians should be spending their energy on caring for the poor instead. And if you read Hebrews 13, 1-3, you might agree with them. Maybe Christians should just be on about social justice. Not care about sex and marriage and what goes on in the bedroom. I mean, if you just read Hebrews 13, 1-3, you might think they're right. Unless, of course, you also read the very next verse. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, if Hebrews 13, 1-3 would be cheered on by our culture, Hebrews 13, 4 would be called a hate crime, wouldn't it? Marriage should be honoured by all? Any sex outside the marriage bed will be judged by God? Our culture calls that narrow and bigoted and outdated. And just to be crystal clear, when this passage talks about marriage, it's talking about marriage specifically between a man and a woman. That's certainly what Jesus himself taught, and as Christians, we follow Jesus' lead. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to let Jesus call the shots, to follow him as Lord and Saviour. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about divorce, and in his response, it makes it really clear what his view of the nature of marriage is. He replies to them, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and for this reason, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now notice what Jesus view of marriage is. He says, the creator, God, made the male and female and... For this reason, a marriage can take place. That's the reason, the basis for marriage. What is it? Created male and female. So according to Jesus, marriage is specifically predicated on the difference in gender between the two parties. That's unpopular in our culture, but that's what Jesus says. And Hebrews says that that... God's design of marriage as the exclusive, lifelong, sexual union between a man and a woman should be honoured by all. And if that wasn't unpopular enough, I mean, let's just look at the second half of it again. Not only should marriage be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, but the reason for that is that God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, again, in our culture, you have two groups of people. Some are on about social justice and caring for the poor and don't care about marriage or sexual purity. No, just do what you want. And others are on about marriage and sexual purity and personal holiness, but often aren't nearly as vocal about caring for the poor or the refugee, love of stranger. But what Hebrews 13 shows us, what the Bible as a whole shows us, is that followers of Jesus will not fit neatly into either of those two camps. Someone 
who sticks with Jesus and lives for Jesus will not only be on about social justice while ignoring personal holiness and will not be vocal on marriage and personal holiness while reject- neglecting the poor and the stranger. Followers of Jesus will follow his example and will care about both. Now you can see this in lots of places, but one pretty well-known verse that illustrates this well is James 1 verse 27. And instead of just quoting it up there, I'm going to take a picture that, you can, that I found on it, because there are lots of pictures like this. It's much prettier, you'd put it on Instagram. Uh, but also you see what you'll see in a moment while I pick this. It says, James 1.27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And maybe you've heard that quoted, it's a great one. It's often used to show, rightly, that true Christian religion is about caring for the poor. That's an outworking of our faith in Jesus. A lot of truth to that. But, if you know the verse, you'll notice that they've left out the second half of it. They've just cut it out right in the middle of a sentence. Because James 1.27 in full reads, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the widow and orphan in their distress, and to keep oneself being polluted by the world. Now, if that last bit had said, and to keep oneself from polluting the world, a lot of people would have left it in. Because it fits very neatly with the narrow agenda of social justice and excluding personal holiness, doesn't it? But no, it says keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's not talking about carbon emissions. It's talking about Christians conforming to the culture around us and their morals. It's talking about Christians being no different from the values of society around us and just doing what people around us do. So, in other words, it's about personal holiness, isn't it, that second half? And so rightly understood in its context with the whole verse, James 1.27 demonstrates beautifully that the true Christian life is not about either or, in this case, but about both and. It's not about social justice, the exclusion of personal holiness, and it's not about personal piety to the exclusion of caring for the poor. It's about both. And that's what Hebrews 13 is showing us. In verses 1 to 3, it's about love of stranger. In verses 4, and even as it goes into verses 5 and 6, which we don't have time to go into today, it talks about greed, about the inner issue of the heart, which of course has outward implications. But Hebrews 13 is showing us that as followers of Jesus, we should be concerned about both. And so if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, uh, let's allow this passage to challenge us, to rebuke us, and to correct us where necessary. As you reflect on your own life, which of these two do you think you tend towards more? Do you tend towards emphasising social justice and love of the stranger, caring for refugees and the poor? Well, those are wonderful things that we should be concerned about as followers of Jesus. But perhaps the warning here is to be careful that you don't fall into the trap of minimising the importance of personal holiness, of sexual purity, of holding marriage in honour and God's design for sex to be only within marriage. Don't fall into the trap of being vocal only on the issues that our culture agrees with. Because it's very easy to be vocal about those issues. 
very hard to be vocal about these in our culture today. But for others of us, the warning from the passage may well be against focusing on personal holiness while neglecting love for the stranger. And in fact, in recent years, there's a growing subculture in the West on the right wing that's aggressive and wants to stand up for religious rights and the de- defend the definition of marriage as between a man and a woman. It's, it's very vocal. It's aggressive even. But often neglects care for the refugee and the foreigner. And it has all kinds of clever justifications for why it's wise and good policy to neglect the refugee and the foreigner. But it's often a smokescreen. So if you're a Christian, be careful that you don't allow yourself to be uncritically conformed to that subculture while disregarding Jesus' teaching on caring for the stranger and the foreigner, even when it's costly and sacrificial, even when it means we might need to give up rights. Now, this passage isn't easy on any of us, is it? Whichever end of the cultural spectrum we land on, whether liberal or conservative, this challenge has a rebuke for us. Jesus has a rebuke for us, as much as we'd like to fit him in the left or the right. And Jesus himself beautifully demonstrates care for both these things, doesn't he? I mean, look at his life on earth. The way he cared for the outcast, the way he healed them, he reached out to them, he included them. That's what Jesus did in his life. And yet also in his death, he demonstrates that social justice alone is not enough. Our real problem is internal. It's in the heart. Our sin problem is so serious that Jesus had to die for us so that we could be forgiven. And that means that we take personal holiness seriously, whether that's in the bedroom, in our wallets, or wherever else. Not to try to save ourselves by moral effort, No, but because we've already been saved by Jesus and now want to please him in all of life. Now, it's important to understand that in any time and place, there'll be certain parts of the Christian ethic that resonate more strongly with our broader culture than others. Some parts of Christianity will be popular and others won't. And which things those are will change depending on the culture you're in. Because, of course, Christianity hasn't changed. In 2,000 years, we still say, whether you're in Australia or Zimbabwe or China, we all hold to the same Jesus, don't we? And yet all of those places have different cultures, don't they? And so Christians will look counterculturally in all those places on different issues. So currently, for example, in the West, the Christian ethic of love and mercy and justice and care for the poor is very popular in our culture, and we'll get shit on for that. But talk about sexual purity and sex being only within marriage, and our culture hates that. And yet, for example, if you went 1,500 years ago, it was the opposite. Roman culture talked a lot about the value of marriage for sustaining a healthy society, even if they didn't always practice what they preached. But they didn't share our current culture's value on caring for the poor. For example, in the 4th century AD, the Roman Emperor Julian was very anti-Christianity. And he complained about their love of strangers and care for the poor. Now, I'll read you the quote in a second, but just a heads up, it's a little confusing. When he says atheism, he's talking about Christianity. 
uh, you know, Christians didn't follow the Roman gods and they had no statues or temples. They just met in homes and you know, talked about this invisible guy, Jesus. So they seemed like atheists. And he calls them godless Galileans uh, because Jesus, of course, was from Galilee. So that's just to help you understand what he's saying. But this is what he wrote in the fourth century. Atheism, i.e. Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He's annoyed. Those godless Christians are caring for the poor. So their religion's growing. And Christianity was denounced by many as the religion of women and slaves. Because Christianity uniquely gave them value in a society that otherwise didn't. So you see, our culture changes all the time. And the parts of our culture that resonate with Christianity will change. Some things that our culture believes about sexuality and ethics have changed just in the last 30 years or less. And guess what? In the next 30 years, many of the things that we take for granted as so obviously true as Westerners will be completely different. Our culture's moral values are so... They just change all the time. And yet for those who are in the cultural waters, we can't even see the water. It seems so obvious to us. Our culture is changing always based on people's whims and preferences. And this means that as Christians, people so often fall into this trap. trap. And so we've got to remind ourselves, as Christians, we would be so foolish to abandon the unpopular elements of Jesus' teaching to conform to our current culture. We would be so foolish to do that. The church or the Christian that marries itself to the spirit of this age will find itself a widow in the next. Our culture is always changing, but Jesus never changes. He's a firm, immovable rock. He's an anchor that we can trust amidst the ever-changing currents of our culture's moral waters. They change, but Jesus stays the same. And that's what Hebrews 13 is reminding them and us of. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 7 and 8. This is what he says to them if they're going to follow Jesus. Verse 7 and 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider, consider the outcome of their way of life as followers of Jesus and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now again, as we saw a few weeks ago, this isn't calling for blind faith, is it? It's calling for grounded faith. It's saying examine their lives. Look at your Christian leaders who have gone before you. Examine them. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And if, if you look at the lives of those who follow Jesus and you see that it's a good outcome, if you see that it's a right outcome, then imitate them and follow Jesus to follow their example as they follow the example of Jesus do not follow the example set for us by our culture today because our culture is different yesterday it's now what it is today and it'll be different again tomorrow
But Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. He's someone you can trust. He's an immovable foundation that you can build your life on. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, Hebrews 13 has begun to show us, hasn't it? It's shown us that following Jesus means we won't fit into the categories of our culture. That's not easy, but it's good. So the semester comes to a close. And as we head into summer, in a few weeks, let's make it our prayer that God would help us not only stick with Jesus, but live for Jesus. Let's ask God to grow us in Christ-likeness. Let's look for opportunities to grow in our faith, whether that's at church or beach mission or whatever, to grow in our personal holiness and opportunities to serve the outcasts and the poor. Let's ask God to make us care about both as we seek to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. So as we close, let me read out this prayer from the end of Hebrews 13. It's a prayer that God would do exactly that in each one of us. And let me encourage you to make this prayer your own. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the internal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may that God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.